Welcome to the ASHP official podcast, your guide to issues related to medication use, public health, and the profession of pharmacy. Thank you for joining us for Therapeutic Thursday's podcast. This podcast provides an opportunity to listen in as members sit down to discuss what's new and ongoing in the world of therapeutics. The title of today's podcast is Nanomedicines in Clinical Therapeutics, Decades of Progress but Still Evolving. My name is Liz Schlamm, and I'm the Vice President of Acuity Clinical Pharmacy Services at Premier, the National GPO, and I will be your host for today's episode. With me today are Tamer Elbayumi, Professor of Pharmaceutical Sciences and Co-Director of the Nanomedicine Center of Excellence at Midwestern University Glendale, whose practice interests are nanomedicine, oncology, and cardiovascular disease, and John Hertig, Associate Professor at Butler University College of Pharmacy, whose practice interests are patient safety and health policy. Thank you for joining us today, Tamer and John. Let's get started on today's topic, nanomedicines. Tamer, can you start off by defining nanomedicines and their current role in the management of diseases? Sure. So nanomedicines in general are defined by their size. So they are generally located in a size range between 100, between one to up to few hundreds nanometers, typically around two to 300 nanometers, which is if you want to put it in perspective, like our red blood cells are 7,000 nanometers, while on the other end of spectrum, our DNA strand is around three nanometers. And that gives you an kind of an idea how they are located within that size. So they have the ability to encapsulate or to carry a lot of our biological molecules inside and help in their delivery. So when we look, talk about nanomaterials in the finished dosage form, the pharmaceutical dosage form, they involve the application of nanotechnology and nanotechnology techniques. And that involves engineering the material and controlling their scale or their uh, nano size in the nanoscale. And that means that I will have either the material or the end product with at least one dimension or an internal surface structure within the nanoscale range, which we talked about is around, around less than 100 nanometer or so. Or even if the overall dimensions are larger than a nanoscale size, but the properties of the overall product are still following the nanoscale property uh, that are the attributed to nanoscale material. How is that? Because typically when we look at nano material or nanoparticles, they are generally have normal surface to size to weight ratio, which means they have a lot of surface energy and their surface energy is quite large and uh, with respect to the entire energy of the system. That gives us huge, unique properties for nanomaterials, where in this case, typically when you have the same material, either in bulk size or in nano size, the nanoscale material properties especially physical and chemical properties are quite different than the bulk material in terms of their melting points, their color uh, uh, spectrum, their fluorescence, their conductivity, electric conductivity, and even thermal conductivity, magnetic property, and certainly their chemical reactivity as a function of their small size. And that translates to a lot of chemical when we apply them in the medical field you will see how these changes or 
superior physical and chemical properties on the nanoscale can be translated into a medical application in nanomedicine. And I think now John can take it from there and tell us about the, these properties in nanoscale small molecules. Yeah, absolutely, Tamer, and really my pleasure to be here today. Compared to these small molecule drugs, nanomedicines really are harder to manufacture, exhibit vastly different PK, PD profiles, and can be associated with some pretty unique properties. Tamer did such a nice job going over how to really describe nanomedicines, which can be a challenge. There is a benefit, though, to being small, and although quite complex, simply put, the tiny size of these medicines increases surface ratio. And by increasing surface ratio, it has a distinct impact on the reactivity of that particular medicine, which imparts many distinctive attributes that are associated with each nanomedicine, making their absorption, distribution, efficacy, safety profiles all unique. For instance, and I found this really interesting, traditionally we may need to, or we may like to dilute a medicine to try to make it less potent, but with some nanomedicines, that dilution may alter reactivity and stability and actually have an inverse effect, which I think is really fascinating to think about. Ultimately, the reduction in particle size gives rise to specific properties that differentiate nanomedicines from other drug products that we would traditionally think about as, as pharmacists or health professionals. Nanomedicine or nanoparticle size, distribution, morphology, surface characteristics, all of these things influence drug delivery, their PKPD, as well as important to me as a patient safety person, their toxicity profiles of any particular drug product. For example, surface modification of a particular nanomedicine can impact their biodistribution of colloidal drugs, which then in turn alters cellular and organ uptake, which may allow actually for some selective or even preferential drug targeting. And I know Tamer will get into some of the more advantages of nanomedicines further in our conversation, but clearly size does matter here. So uh, back to you. Thank you for going over some of the basics of nanomedicines. So can you tell us now, maybe Tamer, start off with what are some of the key advantages of nanomedicines? Sure. So generally, when we're talking about nanomedicines, we're essentially talking about nanocarriers where they can carry our small or large molecules or like proteins and DNA and, and RNA and nucleotides in general, and they deliver them rather than being without a carrier or encapsulated in a carrier. So the overall perspective when we look about nanomedicines, that generally when we are putting the drug within a nanocarrier, the physical and chemical properties of the entire formulation and now are now covered or controlled by those of the carrier, which means if I change the carrier properties and the surface properties and the surface chemistry, then I can easily improve the overall characteristics of the entire formulation without the need to modify the drug itself. So I am not messing or changing the actual chemical structure of the drug or modifying it in any way. I'm just modifying the carrier itself, the carrier material in the nanoscale, and that will basically give me the better qualities of the overall formulation. So that's why we're calling that we can say that the nanocarrier systems in general, they offer solutions to a lot of the problems that are typically associated with free drugs. 
they can improve the physical properties. They can, for example, when we have highly lipophilic drugs, drugs that are very difficult to, to dissolve and there's very uh, low water solubility, they can actually improve solubility in dissolution in our final dosage form. They offer a lot of qualities for us to control the release of the free drug from the nanocarrier. They can actually also improve the PKPD profile, for example, increasing the plasma resonance time, especially when we're talking about pigulated or stealth nanocarriers that can protect the entire system or the entire encapsulated drug from immune cell recognition and hence decrease its clearance and improve its plasma circulation time and half-life. In addition, that will allow us for the drug to circulate longer time in the plasma, longer in the bloodstream. This means it will pass over the areas where the pathological area of the disease, for example, a tumor or inflamed area tissue, then they reside, they start accruing and accumulating in this area slowly and surely over time, allowing increased concentration of the drug at this targeted area. At the same time, when I try to give a free drug, usually the free drug has to go all over the entire body in order to achieve a sufficient concentration in the target area. On the flip side, when you are giving a nanomedicine or a drug within a nanocarrier system, then you're actually, by modifying the nanocarrier system, you're allowing to concentrate more in the target tissue so I can give less of a total dose of the drug that is required to achieve enough or sufficient local center concentration of the drug at the pathological site which means eventually I am having a better efficacy. And then at the flip side, I'm also leaning towards, I am not going all over the non-targeted tissue or the neutral tissue, which means generally a lower toxicity profile. And as John mentioned over uh, earlier, that's one of the major aspects that he can describe even further now about as an advantage for nanomedicine application. Yeah, thanks, Tamer. And I'll pick up right where you left off because you did such a nice job going through some of the um, science behind the advantages. And if you'll allow me, I'd love to go through a few examples um, in practice of where we see nanomedicines play a really key role. As we talked about the particular properties of nanomedicines associated with their nanoscale dimensions do lead to therapeutic advantages. For example, paclitaxel protein-bound particles are a type of nanomedicine that we may be familiar with, and they're specifically engineered for use in several oncologic indications. They were specifically developed, as Tamar alluded to, to overcome hypersensitivity reactions and toxicities that were associated with the previous formulation. And evidence would suggest that Specific stabilized formulations of paclitaxel protein-bound particles may also facilitate increased penetration through the blood-brain barrier to enable targeting of specific brain tumors. So not only are we reducing toxicity because we'll potentially be able to use a lower dose because it's more stable, but also target specific cells of concern. Those physiochemical characteristics of nanomedicines influence uptake, they influence distribution, they influence penetration as well as bioavailability, 
which has direct correlations, obviously, to efficacy, tolerability, and safety. Uh, Tamer mentioned PEG, or the polyethylene glycol conjugation as a strategy. Well, PEG conjugation has been used with liposomal doxorubicin to improve plasma stability and half-life. The higher stability of that PEG-conjugated nanomedicine means that it's got increased tumor exposure, right? It's sticking around longer, so it's right over that tumor. It's more stable, so you can have a similar efficacy, but a lower dose, lower dose, lower toxicity. And then, you know, finally... As another great example of the utilization of nanomedicines, let's let's use um, IAV iron carbohydrate complexes, one of the older nanomedicines that we have available. These were mainly used for the treatment of iron deficiency and iron deficiency anemia. And the nanomedicines in this case are stabilized and they're stabilized with this carbohydrate shell that's essentially filled and designed to overcome limitations of oral administration, which is something that we like to do is have that iron be bioavailable. The drug profile in the body of these nanomedicines is directly influenced by the core size of that carbohydrate shell, the way it's filled, the chemistry. There are so many different factors that go in to the clinical and practical profile of a nanomedicine that it, it is very complex. And we're going to get into some of the challenges and complexity with manufacturing as part of this discussion, but know that all these advantages, although really good, are based on the way that that nanomedicine is built, is formed, and it all has a direct influence on safety. So it's important as a pharmacist and a health professional to understand that there are nuances and differences between products as we look to use them clinically in the best possible way. So I think I've alluded to a few of those challenges, Tamer, and, and maybe we address some of those next. Yes, I agree. Why don't we move on then to the challenges with nanomedicines? Thank you. So I'll start with talking about essentially the, the manufacturing and the production of these nanomedicines. So as Jean alluded to, um, their complexity, that creates, it's, it's quite different than when, especially when you're dealing with a simple solution, like as for the free drugs, simple solution of simple powders and flow through the packaging material and the, uh, the press material and just simple excipients that just are combined together. In manufacturing nanomedicines, there are certain challenges because these are complex molecules where they have different components that have to kind of interact or get complex together. And for example, for our, when we talked about our iron sucrose nanoparticles, the ones that we use for uh, parenteral nutrition, supporting anemia patients, either regular anemia patients or even oncology anemia patients. So for these, the central polynuclear mineral core is actually covered with sucrose and carbohydrates, which can differ a lot in their chemistry, in the branching of the carbohydrate molecules around them. And the core itself, as you prepare it, that's the difference in the core size in relative to the carbohydrate shell around it can really affect how these materials or the final product can, uh, the by distribution of it within the patient. So that's why we're saying 
putting these materials together due to the interactions between the components of the nanomaterials while we are manufacturing them will have a, a unique impact on the drug stability, on their biopharmaceutics and biopharmaceutical profile in vivo, in their pharmacokinetic and how long they're going to circulate and how long they're going to remain, and their stability and biocompatibility in vivo, in it, which basically translate to their safety profile and immunogenicity. And that necessitates for us that we really need to bring this information to the healthcare professionals and, and educate them more about the differences and the nuances uh, between these, even if you are dealing with this with a lot of nanopharmaceutical products or nanoproducts of the same active ingredient, this doesn't mean that they all going to behave the same if you give them to the patient. And John can elaborate a little more about this. Of course, and I couldn't agree more. I think although our education has improved, we have a long way to go, and, and I think we'll wrap up with that later. But in general, as Tamer suggests, there is a lack of knowledge about the complexity of nanomedicines among health professionals, including pharmacists. Um, not all nano medicines, uh, even with the same API or pharmaceutically equivalent as we've talked about. And I think it underscores a key point to consider here and a potential limitation or challenge in nanomedicines is that traditional methods of medicine characterization may not properly identify nanomedicines, which leads to potential differing clinical safety and efficacy profiles. In other words, you can have medicines with similar, even identical API, active ingredient, but that behave very differently in the body because they're engineered differently. And these nuances pose challenges to clinical application, particularly if, if you're undereducated or you have limited knowledge and that is not necessarily appreciated by the health professional or pharmacist. And I think that's one of the reasons why I really value being on this program is being able to continue and, and grow that conversation with, with my colleagues around the importance of understanding these nuances and, and differences. Thank you. Yes, it is really great to go over all this information and so that everybody has a better understanding of what nanomedicines are all about. Can we um, talk a little bit about manufacturing of nanomedicines? Like, are there, what are the challenges around that? And then also with storing of the nanomedicine formulations? Thank you. So I will start with talking about the manufacturing and the quality control of these nanomaterials. And then Jean can follow up on basically the storing and the handling of the final products. So for nanomaterial, as we mentioned earlier, they are quite complex in terms of their engineering together to conventional dosage forms when you're basically just mixing or just adding material together and just packing them or packaging them together. So that's why because of this unique engineering requirement, the strict control, quality control is required to minimize or actually prevent any batch-to-batch -batch variation. Because, for example, if you are using different materials that can extrude or minimize, you know, different machines and uh, designs of the same machine uh, to minimize the size of the lipid nanoparticles, for example, what we call it an extruder. Each extruder has different properties in passing the material and applying pressure on the actual lipid solution. That will affect your encapsulation efficiency of the API. 
in addition, for example, it's the heat generated from each one, each design of extruder can really affect the stability of the API that is being encapsulated within the nanocarrier. So that's why having these, even that the tiniest difference in manufacturing condition or engineering conditions for the nanomedicines in, in, in between different plants and different uh, production lines uh, have carried significant variation that can really impact their biological properties. So that's why optimization and continuous quality control, not just in the raw material, but also in the manufacturing condition and the manufacturing criteria and uh, quality control criteria that has to be applied very strictly for nanomedicines, far more than simple or conventional dosage form. That brings us to the topic of the difficulty in actually getting these criteria unified because, again, nanomedicines, yes, they are getting now in the market, but the manufacturers that have these materials and that have these equipment for them, they are mostly like proprietary equipment. So having unified control, uh, like quality control criteria to be unified for them to really have specified nano-similar criteria that I can really judge that this product is exactly pharmaceutically equivalent to that nano-similar product hasn't been yet established yet. And this is a, quite a challenge for us in controlling the quality and the equivalency between these final products, nanomedicine products. And then now when we're talking about them going into the market, that brings another challenge when you're talking about handling them by healthcare professionals. And John can take it from there on this aspect. Thanks, Tamer. And, and I'm really glad you went over that specific information regarding manufacturing, because I think that's one of the really significant attributes of nanomedicines is the complex manufacturing process behind it and worth emphasizing that manufacturing process is incredibly complex. I always use the example of a snowflake where really each nanomedicine is pretty unique and the quality and composition of nanomedicines is super dependent on those sophisticated manufacturing processes where even small Differences in process conditions can lead to differences in their critical quality or what would be called critical quality attributes. This does make interchangeability between products somewhat difficult. And, you know, pharmacists have that responsibility to understand these issues. And it would make sense that if these manufacturing processes are so regimented and so highly regulated and, and highly proprietary, it would make sense then that once those medicines get into the market, it also needs to be kept in very strict, stringent conditions. And that's where storage and transportation is really important. It's equally complex due to the sensitivity of nanomedicines to temperature, potential of oxidation, um, other potential infiltrates. It's really important that pharmacists are involved and health professionals are involved in the cold chain, if necessary, the supply chain all the time, and so that these medicines are stored, transported, and kept according to these very strict standards so that by the time they're actually administered to the patient, that they're going to have the desired clinical effect that we know they can. That's an important role for the pharmacist to play and probably another area that needs increased emphasis as we talk about gaps in education and, and some of those needs moving forward. Thank you. Yes, I agree that, you know, there are definitely 
is something we need to discuss the education of pharmacists around nanomedicines. You know, as we're talking about all these important advantages and challenges and, you know, things that most people, you know, probably aren't aware of when they're practicing pharmacy. Can you comment on how this material is being covered in like medicinal chemistry or therapeutics in PharmD programs? Yeah, I can. And I'll start. And I would welcome Tamer to jump in. Uh, I don't think we're doing a, a good enough job, I think, in our PharmD curriculums. And I can speak for the ones I'm familiar with. Certainly can't speak for every single school or college of pharmacy out there. But in general, what I'm hearing from my colleagues is that there's some uh, room for improvement here. Um, because ultimately, I, I do think nanomedicines represent the future of many of our therapies in, in many ways. And pharmacists are the medication use experts. Therefore, it would make sense that in our educational system, that pharmacists are exposed to the, the advantages, as well as some of the limitations and challenges of medicines, of nanomedicines, excuse me, so that we're prepared to graduate individuals that are, are ready and willing to use nanomedicines in the way they were attended. And this was this extends from uh, becoming experts in handling and formulary selection because of the unique and complex nature of nanomedicines and their nanosimilars. It necessitates that understanding of the strict handling and storage and administration protocols. Because if we don't do that, if we don't have that understanding, it has the potential to have negative consequences for patients, which is the exact opposite of what we want out of nanomedicines. We want to take every advantage of their clinical benefit, but also limit any potential patient safety complication. To me, this is a critical patient safety role, but we must improve our education in the curricula and then beyond to do that. And, and Tamar, I welcome additional input from you. Thank you. Yeah, indeed. So for a farm deep curriculum, we have a lot of schools started just bringing the concepts and the idea of nanomedicines and especially the classical ones, the liposomes and some of the micellar formulations. They brought it, uh, touch upon it, uh, usually in pharmaceutics, very rarely sometimes in medicinal chemistry when they are talking about the very brand new drugs that are coming in the market and that they have different forms rather than modifying the active ingredient or the active chemical compound. But the problem is we just basically mentioned these things by name, but we don't really tell them what are the real advantage and the real properties of these materials that qualifies them to be on kind of a different level of understanding. For example, we don't even have the ability, a lot of schools didn't even try to incorporate even like a specific nanomedicine knowledge, like elective courses, paracurricular activities, training material, you know what, just even like co-op training and bringing the seminars from some experts in the area or manufacturing facilities or companies that produce nanomedicine. And they actually can introduce these knowledge to the, uh, the students and telling them, this is how our nanomedicine, our new products compared to the conventional one that has been in the market for the past 50, 60 years. This kind of, you know, in-class knowledge is necessary. In addition, there is now the problem with bringing this material just even with simple knowledge education. No, we need to really bring it in because that is the new era in medicine, personalized, targeted medicine, targeted therapy. 
All of this is carried in now, as we've seen from the COVID vaccine and targeted therapeutics and cellular therapy. All of this is facilitated by nanomedicine, but we do not have any specific nanomedicine or nanotechnology curricular modules or teaching material or resources that we can actually disseminate to the colleges and educators that they can directly adopt and incorporate it into their curriculum. That is another challenge that we really need to provide these specific modulated, like tailored modules that an, an educator can easily take it and adopt it and integrate it into their pharmacy curriculum for the students to take right away rather than each person trying to tailor their own or create a whole thing from the start on their own, which will have different emphasis and different impact on the future pharmacists. So this need to have some sort of uniform educational material to go into the pharmacy curriculum is quite a challenge. And still, it's actually an opportunity for all of us to bring this material in. Those are gonna be the building blocks for nanomedicine education into the, the pharmacy curriculum. If I may just emphasize that point, and Tamer's right. I mean, the use of nanomedicines will continue to expand and a medicine profile is not just about the API or active ingredient, but I think instead about providing maybe through engineered medicines like nanomedicines, maximum benefit with, with limited toxicity and limited patient safety impact. And, and clearly, uh, as Tamer just emphasized, I think we have an opportunity within our PharmD curriculums and beyond to improve and, and maybe even stand standardize some of the education um, that we know will, will improve the utilization of these medicines in practice. Okay, you. Um, yes, I definitely agree that that is where we need to start in the PharmD programs and, and also podcasts like this help to get the information out. And I know we only just touched on a few aspects of nanomedicine, certainly some of the important things that we need to discuss as basics of nanomedicines, but I want to thank you, John and Tamer, for bringing this podcast uh, to the ASHP membership, and hopefully this is a place to start, and maybe we can bring you back in the future to discuss nanomedicine some more. So thank you both for participating in this podcast. And for everyone out there, if you haven't before, I encourage you all to check out ASHP's clinical resources. You can find member-exclusive offerings such as resource centers, including those on critical care, nutrition support, opioid management, infectious diseases, and more. Other offerings include the Credentialing and Privileging Resource Center, the Preceptor Toolkit, and forums such as the ASHP section of clinical specialists and scientists in their Connect community. And in the Connect community, you can exchange ideas and post questions with your peers. So I'd like to thank you again for tuning in for this session on Therapeutic Thursday, and join us here every Thursday, where we will be talking with ASHP member content matter experts on a variety of clinical topics. Thank you. Thank you for listening to ASHP Official, the voice of pharmacists advancing healthcare. Be sure to visit ashp.org forward slash podcast to discover more great episodes, access show notes, and download the episode transcript. If you loved the episode and want to hear more, be sure to subscribe, rate, or leave a review. Join us next time on ASHP Official.